this evening, <coughs> we're going to take together the book of Ezra. <coughs> I don't know quite um, how far we shall really get, but I'm not going to go over last week at all. There's a, a better diagram than last week now upon that board. <coughs> which just outlines for you the, <coughs> the Persian kings, uh, <coughs> roughly, and on the left side of the board you will see the, um, the different events of these three books, that is Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther, I have just put in. The first return under Sarah, uh, and between Cyrus and Darius the first, the altar, the foundation, and the temple built. Then Esther comes in the reign of Xerxes, or in our Bible, Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. Then the second return, uh, under Ezra, comes in the reign of Artaxerxes. Um, and then the third return, twelve years later, uh, under Nehemiah, was also in the same reign. And I just marked at the end in... 331, 330 actually, the fall of the Persian Empire when Alexander the Great defeated them. And the great Greek era was ushered in. So that's very simply the, um, the diagram explained. I have underlined Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes because they were all three active Zoroastrians. Um, and for those of you who were here last week, you understand what that means. It simply means that because of their religion and their religious attitude, they were very, very kindly disposed on the whole towards the Jews more than any other of the captive people in the empire. That is explained partly why Ahasuerus married uh, a Jewess, although he wasn't, I haven't underlined him, as a positive Zoroastrian in the same way as the others. Now, I want just to say one word <coughs> uh, to add uh, on to last week. You remember we ended last week on the key to this book, this book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We found out simply that the key to this, the, this twofold book was, of course, the same as to Chronicles, that is, the house of God. The temple is the heart of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. But we found that a new note was struck, and this new note is really the key to Ezra and Nehemiah. This new note is recovery. And wherever you turn in these two books, you will find recovery. Everywhere, on every side, you will find that something is being restored, something being rebuilt. Something is being reinstituted or recovered. The whole book breathes recovery. And the thing I wanted to add to what I said last week is, is, was just this simple fact. It is a wonderful thing to see the character of God displayed in Ezra and Nehemiah. It may be of real help to one or two of you to understand the character of God as displayed in Ezra and Nehemiah. It is simply this. The Lord is always 
loathes to give up anything. This may help some of you. The Lord is loathed to give up anyone. This question of hell, damnation, and judgment, and so on, is not such a facile and easy thing as some people imagine. I believe the Lord loathes the giving up of anyone to anything like that. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the most wonderful example and illustration of the patience and the long-suffering and the faithfulness of God. He will not let go. And it reminds one of the word of the Lord to Jeremiah when he took him down to the potter's house showed him a vessel, showed how it was ruined, showed how it was smashed, and then showed him how it was remade. Now this is just the character of our God. That's the most wonderful thing. Uh, God will not let go anything until it is literally impossible to do anything with it. Of course, humanity is the picture of that in general. Why, many of us ask the question, why didn't the Lord give up humanity at the beginning altogether and start afresh in a new way? But no, you see, when humanity became wrecked and ruined, the Lord would not give it up, but found a way of redeeming it and restoring it and refashioning it, reconstituting it. See? Israel is the same. I believe that's what Paul meant when he said, in the end, all Israel will be saved. God will not let it go. In the end, his idea in the spiritual Israel of God will be wholly and completely well. Now I say that for one very, very important reason. There is this modern, and not so modern in some ways, uh, teaching, and more perhaps than a teaching, uh, an idea current amongst the Lord's people that the Lord has given up what he originally in the New Testament. That is, it is now, the church is split into so many factions, into so many uh, smitherings, it has become so corrupt, it has become so worldly, so organized, that really it's a question of individuals finding their way to the Lord. But the Lord never lets go of what is his real thought. And Ezra and Nehemiah are the wonderful example of that. You know, the Lord never rejects anything. Do you know the Lord, rather than reject something, will deliberately stumble one of his children and put them in the far country and purge them in the far country of every single thing that was antagonistic and rebellious and unyielding and then bring them back. But he will not let them go. I believe that's what the Lord Jesus meant in the parable of the prodigal son. You see? The father helped the son to go. He never, he never counseled him not to go. He never stood in his way. He willingly gave him the money, the money to live in immorality and license. The father gave the prodigal son the money to live in the far country and have a riotous time. Now this is God. He would prefer to allow the whole Jewish nation to go into exile and into captivity and to be satiated with idolatry in order to purge them and purify them and then bring them back, a nation that is now and has been ever since uh, purged and purified uh, from idolatry. I wanted just to say that I feel that it's 
something that we have got to take note of. The Lord refuses to reject anything until it is absolutely impossible. Now, that's a great, should be a comfort to all of us. He refuses to reject anything. He may, uh, he may deliberately put us, if we will not yield, he may deliberately put us in the far country and allow us to have our, our time to the full. But the whole purpose of the Lord is to restore and to recover what is really of himself. So we see this in these wonderful books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now the outline of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, is really under one great um, title. It's really the last part of Chronicles, and that is the recovery of the house of God and the bringing in of the Christ of God. That is the title. Under that we find three subdivisions. And I have put them under the first return, the first return under the rubber book, the second return, uh, about something like 20 years later, under Ezra, and then the third return under Nehemiah. And then we shall find that there are some subdivisions under that, uh, more sub-subdivisions. But those are the three subdivisions of Ezra, Nehemiah. They went into exile in three stages. They came back to the land and to the house of God in three clearly defined stages. Now, let's take this evening the first of these stages. We will find that in Ezra, the first six chapters of Ezra, which are absolutely important to the rest. They're vital, actually, to the rest of the book. We shall not need to spend the re so much time on the rest of it as on these six chapters. They lay the foundation. In uh, here, in this, these six chapters, we have the first great return under Zerubbabel. Now, what do we find... Uh, in these chapters. You remember we, we said last week that Ezra and Nehemiah coming at the very end of the Old Testament age crystallize and embody principles of recovery and principles which are basic to bringing the Lord Jesus back to this earth. So we shall expect to find here principles of recovery. We shall expect to find them uh, in the, this book. Well now, the first six chapters, if we turn to chapter one, we come to the first principle of recovery. And I expect you'll all sigh when you find that the first principle of recovery, as we find it in chapter 1, is clearly a matter of ground. You will see that chapter 1 has two main things about it. The first is the decree of Cyrus, that is the great proclamation and decree of Cyrus, in which uh, the, uh, the declaration was made for allowing the people to return and rebuild the house of God uh, in Jerusalem. And the second thing is the actual return. 
It is very, very simple account indeed. There are not many verses, only 11 verses in this first chapter. Why do we say that the, we find here this question of ground? Well, you and I have got to remember that this was written when the Jews were back in Jerusalem and back in the land. Now, when you remember that, you will understand how very remarkable this is. Now look at verse 1. Um, rather, verse 2. He hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. God of heaven, the Lord, the God of heaven, hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Verse 3. Let him go up to Jerusalem and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. Verse 4, the last part, for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Verse 5, last part, even all whose spirit God has stirred up go to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And then if you turn to verse 11, you will find all these did Sheshbazah bring up when they of the captivity were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Even more remarkable is, if you turn back to verse 3, is the literal, the literal translation of the last part, part of verse 3. It is this, the God of Israel, he is God who is in Jerusalem. He is God who is in Jerusalem. A remarkable thing. And that has given a lot of trouble to translators. You will find in nearly all the versions they differ because they're not quite clear what does this mean. Was it a reference by Cyrus uh, as if he was thinking that this was one of the many gods and was the god in Jerusalem? But then we know that Cyrus did not believe in many gods. He believed in one god. And here he says, the god who is in Jerusalem. Now if you turn to chapter 2 and to verse 6. No, I'm sorry, to verse 68. Some of the heads of fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. It's a strange thing to write, isn't it? When they're already there. This was written after they'd come, which is in Jerusalem. Then if you look at chapter 3, and verse 1, the people gather themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And verse 8, now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem. It's almost remarkable because these references coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, the house of God wasn't even erected. So that instance we just read, the foundation was just about to be laid. And then if you look at chapter 6, and verse 12. Again, this is the word of Darius, this house of God which is at Jerusalem. Well now, if we take all this into account, <coughs> we come to this first point, that <coughs> in recovery, there is this whole matter of ground. There is one thing that is reiterated clearly. 
and it is the matter of ground. It, it is reiterated everywhere in uh, these few chapters. Why is there this continual emphasis on Jerusalem, it being at Jerusalem, a thing which everyone knew? Why the need to put it in and to underline it? It seems to me quite clear that Ezra is underlining the fact that the house of God can only be built on certain grounds and on no other ground. Upon that ground alone can the house of God be rebuilt. It's no good going back to build a house of God at Bethel, or a house of God at Bethlehem, or a house of God at Jericho, or a house of God somewhere else in the land. God has clearly defined a certain place and a certain locality in the land. That place is called Jerusalem. And he has clearly said that there he has caused his name to dwell. Therefore, in recovery, the first thing is to go back to the original ground. And that is why in the book of Ezra, the first thing we come across is this reiteration that it is at Jerusalem. The decree is focused on Jerusalem. It is a remarkable thing that Cyrus doesn't mention the land and he doesn't mention any city. He mentions no villages. He mentions only Jerusalem and his whole decree is focused upon the house of God which is to be built at Jerusalem. The land, the cities are all subsidiary. They all result. It is the house of God at Jerusalem which is the point the focal point of the decree. Now you will also notice that it is not only the decree, the return is to Jerusalem. It does not say uh, here, that uh, in the first chapter, that they returned to anywhere else. In the second chapter it tells us that they returned to Jerusalem and Judah. But in the first chapter the thing clearly stated is that they all go back to Jerusalem. They come up to Jerusalem. They are brought up there. So we find God's house can only be built on certain ground which he has clearly defined and nowhere else. It is a most solemn thing to try to build the house of God on any other ground than the ground which God has originally defined. It is incumbent upon us if we are going to have any part whatsoever in the recovery of the testimony of Jesus in these last days, the realization of the purpose of God, to understand what this question of ground means and how it works out in practice. It is absolutely essential. It is the first principle of recovery. You see, the whole point is this that today, to be absolutely blunt and candid, today you will find churches, as they're called, built on all kinds of grounds. They are branches of denominations, they are on national ground, or they're on some form of teaching, either on the method of baptism, or perhaps the method of church government, or um, some uh, certain aspect of holiness, uh, on, or so on. It's either fuller ministry or lesser ministry, fuller light or lesser light. It's, some of them are built on pure evangelism only. 
they are an evangelistic agency, as if that is sufficient ground to really build and start a church. Do you see what I mean? The whole point is a complete chaos. Today, if you were to go out into evangelical circles or amongst the Lord's people and ask them clearly to tell you how, on what ground can the house of God be built, you would get the most surprising, the most surprising answers. From all kinds of answers to the most spiritual, and the most spiritual would be on Christ. They would tell you, you must build on what Christ did. And we would all agree, you must build on what Christ did. But the point is, has God defined practically for us, anywhere in the world, any ground, upon which the church is developed. We all know that the church is inherent in the life of Christ. If we allow the life of Christ to flow, the church is the result. But why doesn't the life of Christ flow in so many places? When you get devoted saints, zealous saints, knowledgeable saints, praying saints, holy saints, why don't you get the church in expression? Because there is a question of ground. When we see this question of ground, then we can understand the church. The New Testament is full, full of this question of church ground. On no other ground can you build the house of God or initiate any work of God. It is the only ground that you can build anything. Now, if that were understood overnight, it would sweep Richmond of all kinds of things. It would. All kinds of things would be gone. All kinds of societies, all kinds of organizations would all get back into perspective. They would all get pushed out or pushed in, but somehow or other, they would all get like a jigsaw, and they would begin to get put into their different places. And then you would find there'd be no Baptists, be no Anglicans, be no Methodists, no Congregations, no Open Brethren, there wouldn't be any of these different things, no exclusives. They would just be the people of God on the ground of Christ in Richmond. And the people of God on the ground of Christ in Twickenham, and so on. There would be nothing else, no more, no less than that. Overnight, a revolution would have taken place which would change the face of the people of God. That is the first principle in recovery. And you see, our dear brothers and sisters, who are so spiritual, often overlook the most pointedly apparent thing of all, because it is geographical. Some people don't believe that anything that's you can hold anything that you can see can possibly be spiritual. But God has linked flesh and blood with spirit. Okay? And this is a principle with God. Even the church down here on earth in its practical expression is linked with locality. It is linked with something tangible, something expressible. So this is the first thing of all, and my, what it would do if we all understood what it would do to Christian workers, what it would do over this country, what it would do to the mission field, if this 
simple principle was understood. It is the first principle of recovery. You must have this ground. So you see, it's no good you trying to build the house of God in Babylon. Many of the Jews remained. You know what they did? They built synagogues everywhere. And they tried to make their little synagogues, the temple, in their own thing. So in Babylon and in all other cities of Asia Minor, these little colonies of Jewry began to somehow try and reproduce in some way or other the temple. But, of course, it could only ever be a center for teaching. It couldn't be anything else. The temple was at Jerusalem. God had clearly stated that there he would dwell and there he would meet with his people. It is a solemn fact that this is linked with the return, uh, with the coming of the Lord Jesus. This question of first getting the ground at Jerusalem clear and going back to it is linked with the return, with the coming of the Lord Jesus. Similarly, the question of the church built and expressed on the right ground is linked with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the second principle we find in this book is in chapter 2. And in this we find, it's very simple, we find here a register. This is a register of all who returned. Uh, the first company, not for all who returned completely, but the first company that returned, some, approximately some 50,000 souls. And do you know this register even includes the livestock? So particular is God about what returns that he includes everything here. Here is a register that covers comprehensively the whole of the first company that returned under the rubber book. Now, we must remember, if we're going to understand this at all, that the great majority remained in exile. They were respectable, they were prosperous, they were uh, little colonies of Jewry uh, in uh, the Persian Empire, and furthermore, they were separated. These Jews, by the captivity, had been purged of a tremendous amount, purified. And although they would not leave their exile conditions, yet they were purged of idolatry, and they were purged for the most part of intermarriage. So they became tight little circles of Jewry to remain right down to the days of our Lord Jesus and on. They were called the Jews of the dispersion. The Jews of the dispersion. More liberal than the Jews of the homeland, but nevertheless, little groups, colonies of Jews, refusing intermarriage, refusing to have anything to do with the customs around them, nevertheless, making their living out of the Gentiles, having the commercial side of things in their hands, wherever they were. So you see, really, when we understand this, it begins to throw everything back into perspective. This group of 50,000 that returned, this first group, it was a tremendous thing for them to leave. Tremendous thing. Uh, it just simply meant that uh, they were completely turning their back on prosperity, on ease, on uh, a certain amount of... Uh, satisfaction and rest, because all persecution had long since vanished. They, the Jews were now looked upon in exile by the Persian, Persians as, uh, well, it was good to be a Jew. It was good to be a Jew. 
Uh, they were looked upon as nearer to the Persian in feeling uh, than any of the other deported races. So you see, it was it was a tremendous thing for these for this group, this company, this remnant to leave. And I want you to mark this as a principle of recovery. That in recovery, it is always a remnant. You will not find anywhere in the word of God, in any recovery of God, that it is anything but a remnant. It seems to be a principle. God always begins with all, but when it is purged and purified, when he recovers and restores it, it is always a, a remnant of the original. Now, I want you to understand that very, very clearly, because, you see, the Jews that were left, we mustn't despise them. They'd learnt a lot. Now they came back to reading the Word of God, Ezekiel taught them that, and so it is. They'd come back to reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God. Now they understood something of their history. Now they were separated for the first time fully, inwardly as well as outwardly. And now they refused to bow to an idol. But they would not, would not leave their exiled conditions. Now, you know, this has a tremendous application to today. This is just the state of things that we find today. The house of God is ruined. The people of God are in exile uh, spiritually. They are far away from what God really intends and what he wants. They are all trying to build the house of God in exile. And, of course, the thing won't work, and they can't understand why the Lord doesn't come in and do something quickly. But it won't work. It just won't work. The Lord will not commit himself to it. He will not undertake for it. Personally, yes. He will provide personally, but not corporately, not collectively. Now, what really is this? Why is this? Well, you see, you and I have got to understand this principle of recovery, that it is always a remnant that returns. You will find the majority of the Lord's people um, will not face this question of the church fully because, and make no mistake about it, of the price involved. This question of the corporate, this question of recovering something wrong, demands every within us. Everything. It demands that all that we are be utterly broken and that all that is of Christ be utterly devoted to him. That is, if Christ is absolutely all-inclusive. There is no half measure. And I believe that's the reason why you find thousands of the Lord's people are far happier to remain in their own traditions and backgrounds and sections and factions of the Lord's people. They think, oh dear, the conflict involved, the price, the cost that's involved, the sacrifice, all the trouble. And furthermore, you must remember that by the fall we have all been constituted individualists. And for the church to come into expression, in the individualist has got to be crucified in every one of us. It's got to be absolutely shattered. And all of us, to some degree or another, have got the individualist theories. The art, that's all. Self-sufficient art. To be shattered. Now, the, the, to be saved is one thing. The church is the practical evidence of a full salvation. Because no fallen human being can live together and become part of each other 
unless they are being saved. They soon fall out. They just can't do it. The cost is too much, far too much. It, it just means that you're just ejected. You can't go on with it. So we have to remember that those who return, this little remnant that return, they open themselves to affliction, they open themselves to conflict, they open themselves to difficulty. Why, can you imagine? All the things we're going to read about in these two books, the folk back in the exile didn't know. There they were with their prosperous little businesses, making their living any happily and prosperously out of all the Gentiles around about them, having a good old time in many, in many ways. They had none of the, of the uh, responsibilities that these that returned had. They had none of the conflict. They had none of the affliction. They knew nothing of the poverty. They didn't know anything of the, of the labor and the toil and the blood and the sweat of these folk that went back to you. They were very happy. Very happy. No doubt some of them even went so far as to pat on the back, those that had gone back. What a good thing they were doing, restoring the old homeland and so on. But you see, uh, in actual fact, they were having a good time, whereas those few that went back, they went back to a desolated land. They were like pilgrim fathers. We must never underestimate their courage and their faith. You think of them. For the most part, they only had 8,000 animals, and there were 50,000 of them. That means most of them had to trudge for four months, it took Ezra anyway, across the desert sand. They trudged and trudged and trudged and trudged. Can you just imagine? They had families, they had children, they had... It was a terrible thing for them. Many a time must they have been tempted on the way back to think of those back there, all in their homes and their own little vineyards and olive yards and all the rest of it, and uh, very happy with the children and everything else. So it's all right for some of us to, to, to pay the cost, but we don't like it when it comes to everyone connected with us having to pay the cost as well. But here you are, there was tremendous cost involved. Husbands and wives and children, whole families, old people, young people, they all had to pay the cost if they were going to go back. So there was a tremendous cost, but they were precious in the eyes of the Lord, and a register uh, was compiled. And here in Ezra 2, you've got a, a register of everyone that went back, including the livestock, everyone. Not one was overlooked by the Lord. They went back. Huh? They were precious in the eyes of the Lord. And I want you to, to note, therefore, the vital importance of history and pedigree. That's a funny thing to say. But the vital importance of history and pedigree. You see, if you look at chapter 2 and from uh, verse 59 to verse 63, you will find that some of them couldn't prove their pedigree. And I'm afraid uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, Joshua were very hard on them. They said they put them out of the priesthood. They were allowed to stay in the land, but they were put out of the priesthood until a high priest would stand up with the Urim and the Thummim and would be able to distinguish whether they really were, they really had a pedigree. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us the vital importance of a true spiritual history and succession. You know... Because you, I call myself a Methodist, doesn't mean to say I'm spiritually in the succession of John or Charles Wesley. 
Because I call myself a Quaker doesn't mean I'm in the spiritual succession of George Fox. There is a spiritual pedigree in church history. Oh yes, a spiritual pedigree in church history. There is a spiritual succession. The Anglicans have built a thing they call the apostolic succession. There is such a thing as a spiritual apostolic succession. Right. Some of you have ever read Board Bent Pilgrim Church, you will see it trace from beginning to end. The spiritual succession. It is important for us to see that we have a pedigree. To see that behind us there is no compromise, no error, no fallacy. We've not become tainted with the world, compromised with the world, mixed up with things in exiled conditions. No, we've got to be severe. We've got to be severe. Some people can't understand us when we're severe. It's not that we want to be exclusive. It is that we're safeguarding a pedigree. It's got to be safeguarded. On the one hand, we maintain the unity of all the people of God, but on the other hand, we've got to be very careful of anything that's compromised, anything that's mixed, Anything that's just not there. Spiritual history. I often wonder as I look through these lists, these men, these strange sounding names, well now, what were they? What were they like? Who were they? Were they prosperous? Were they poor? Why did they leave? Does God stir up their spirit? I wonder what their conditions were, what their circumstances were. They no doubt many of them had big problems and big difficulties, and I have no doubt that if you got down to it, you would find that every one of them had a reason to stay, and a legitimate reason. But they left. They came back. So there's another wonderful thing that we want to take note of. In recovery, it's a small remnant, and that remnant must have a spiritual pedigree, pure pedigree, and they must have a spiritual history and experience behind them. They will be a poor and afflicted people, and because they are in this vanguard of recovery, they will open themselves up to conflict, to difficulty, to strange, intangible, inexplicable things that, that the others know nothing about. Then the next thing we find in chapter 3, and we find in two things in this chapter, <clears throat> in the first seven verses we find the third principle, it is this, the first thing they rebuilt when they returned was the altar. And as soon as they rebuilt the altar, they offered sacrifices on it before even the temple was rebuilt. Now, isn't that a remarkable thing? Before ever the first stone of the foundation, of the foundation, was laid, they had erected the altar and were offering sacrifices on it. Indeed, they kept the Feast of Tabernacles before ever the temple was there, or even the first stones were laid. Now, what does this teach us? It teaches us this. The cross is absolutely fundamental to recovery. It is the third great principle. The first is ground. The second is a remnant. The third is the cross. The cross working practically in them all. Now, what does this teach us? I want you to read a very interesting little verse in Ezra, chapter 3, and verse 3. It says this, And they set the altar upon its face, for fear was upon them because of the peoples of the countries, and they offered burnt offerings. What a strange thing. Now why do you think they, they put the altar on its base 
because fear was upon them because of the people of the other country. Now, why do you think that? And anyone think, why? I'll tell you. They felt that if they gave the Lord his right, the Lord would undertake for them they weren't afraid of those great nations round about them if they gave the Lord his right. How do you and I give the Lord his right? By trying to have fellowship with everyone? You try. By trying to be one with everyone? By trying to be in harmony with the company? By trying to be holy? Or prayerful? Now, how do you give the Lord his right? You give the Lord his right by allowing the Holy Spirit to work the cross deeply into your heart and life. This is the only way the Lord gets his right. The only way. There is no other way for the Lord to get his right. The tragedy of today is that that the Lord's people have bypassed the cross and built the church. That is the tragedy. They have bypassed the cross. They have only a bit of the cross. That is that we're saved, justified by the cross, and they've built the church. And what's happened? You've got a complete mess. A complete mess. Everywhere. You can collect people together, you can get Christians together, but that doesn't mean to say you've got the church. The, the church is produced by the working of the cross. The church is within the life of the Lord Jesus. What part of the church? If you want to be part of the church, you must take the cross as your portion. The cross has got to do a deep and a shattering work in every one of us if there would be any recovery whatsoever. Now, before ever a stone of the foundation is laid, the cross is in its position. There can be no foundation for the church until you've got the cross. The cross is the very first thing in recovery. Unfortunately, the recording of the message finished at this point.